Hello listeners, this coming episode will be the UK angle of our preview to 2021. On Wednesday the 20th of January, however, we will be recording an inauguration special on the day that Joe Biden is inaugurated as the 46th President of the United States. If you'd rather just listen to that, just listen to that. It's your choice. But if you'd rather listen to both of the podcasts, please do go ahead. Hello, welcome to Mere Points, and albeit rather relatedly, a brand new year. This time, after a long break, I do apologise, I am joined by Mr. Alex Boscott. Hello. Nice to to be here. And Jack Walker. Hello. The regular. Yes, that is me. If this was a pub. (sighs) If we did it properly. During this episode... (laughs) During this episode of the podcast, uh, we'll be looking at how 2020 might transpire and after a year like 2020 it has a lot to live up to it will feature the beginning of joe biden's term as the president of the united states later this month Holyrood elections in scotland and uk-wide local elections on the 6th of may hopefully the 2020 olympics and hopefully the european championships in the summer but to name a few so i mean not that you can but do you two have any plans for this year um, survival is up there. Uh, that that's definitely a target of mine. Um, other than that, no. Yeah, to be honest, I think I think you're pretty much bang on there, Alex. Because um, <laughs> we we don't know how long we're we're gonna be like this, do we? Frankly, um, but yeah, staying sane, I suppose I could probably add to that. That would be nice. Um, but yeah, in terms of like long long distance planning, it's it's just not really worth it, is it? Right now. <laughs> But things are looking up with the deployment of the uh, vaccines and and immediately pressing is the worldwide vaccine rollout. And in the UK, there's just been over just over 2.3 million people have been given the first dose, mostly over 80s. But there's been stories of spare vaccines being given to um, employees, um, especially NHS workers and people like that. Um, In Germany... There has been about 200,000, in Italy 100,000, Poland 50,000, and Israel, I believe, um, is the highest per 100 people, um, with the UK, I think, third. I can't remember who's second. I think it's something like um, Bahrain that I saw on the internet earlier on. Um, But Matt Hancock said a few days ago that two-fifths of the over-80s have had their first jab. Do you two have any old relatives who've had theirs yet? I'll... um... I can say no um, as of yet. They are uh, some older relatives of mine uh, are scheduled to have them. Uh, they're yet to have them, uh, but it's it's promising that they've they've been contacted, and I, I do hope it is, you know, soon rolled out amongst uh, all of the older people. To be honest, because it's uh, getting a bit desperate with the situation with the cases and deaths. Although you did mention how many we've had so far. Um, I just checked it on, on Sky. It's around three. It's apparently three million eight hundred and fifty-seven thousand first doses in the UK so far. That's gone up a lot. In yeah, the last that, day or so then. Yeah, that was that's what that's what apparently is so far. Although the source is 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 me reading it on the internet. So uh, <laughs> take that as you will. However, that is apparently how far we've got, which is a lot of progress in the last few in the last week or so. Yeah, 
I think um, within the last couple of weeks, there's been seven vaccination mass vaccination centres open, doesn't there? And one of them's been in Birmingham um, with others. And then in the next week, I believe there's 10 more. So it's going to more than double. So hopefully there'll be a lot uh, more doses being given. Jack, do you know anyone who's had it yet? Um, my stepmom's parents have both had their first dose. Um, they live in a care home. So they've received it. Um, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I can only assume all's gone well. Um, I haven't heard anything either way from them in terms of how how they fared or, or, or anything like that. Um, but I think we all kind of breathed a sigh of relief a little bit, didn't we? Like collectively as a world, um, when news of the first, well, the first vaccine and then obviously the second one um, broke the... William Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um <laughs> You know, I think we all just breathe that sigh of relief in with it. We're starting to see the light at the end of what's been a very long and obviously continues to be a very long tunnel um, kind of appeared. But slow and steady, we're getting there, aren't we? We're getting there. Well, my grandmother had hers on the 15th, I believe, and she was contacted on two occasions, two separate occasions. The first was via a letter stating that her jab will be at the new mass vaccination uh, place at Birmingham. And then the other was by a phone call stating that it will, it will be in, in fact be at her local civic hall the next day. So by that, so those two small details, um, it suggests that the opening of many more centres nationwide during the last week has come with maybe some little communication and logistical problems, but a lot more wider coverage. Saying that, talking to her earlier on, she said that she only waited half an hour um, and it was done in an instant and she's... She had to stay about half an hour um, just to make sure that there was no immediate sort of allergic reactions. Um, they took a temperature before. Um, she said that it was no different to all of the injections she gets. So, And I think that's been the consensus, um, thinking about it, for um, all of the people who have spoken to the media and the things. Um, but I was listening, interestingly, the other day on the radio, um, on BBC Radio Leicester, I believe it was, and it was talking about how um, minority communities need more role models, especially of the Asian community, because there's a lot of rumours going around on the internet about vaccines containing beef, obviously cows mm. being sacred to the Hindu religion and things like that. So I think it would be handy to have uh, more minority people on TV having vaccines done. And Jack, yes, you said that your relatives were in a care home and there's been some reports of some care homes being neglected again. Um but the people I spoke to an organization organizing care homes in Derbyshire for an article that didn't quite transpire. And um, they said it was going well. So it seems to be, again, some inconsistencies there. Did you say that yours were well and had their vaccine done? As far as I'm aware, they've both had their first shot. Uh, everybody in that care home, I believe, had their first shot. Um, things seem to have worked out at, in Nottingham where they are. Um, but, you know, I suppose... With programs like this, you're bound to get some sort of little teething problems, aren't you? And obviously, when I say little, I mean small in terms of, you know, the vaccine isn't killing people. Like, well, mm. that, that communication issue is something that can easily be resolved, isn't it? Um, yeah, the teething problems that I've described are nothing, really. Inconvenient as they <laughs> are, just, you know. It seems, I'm, I'm looking, to be honest, I'm looking for holes to talk about, but... Um, there's not really any that, are, that that has been publicised or people have been talking about. It seems to be going quite well so far. And, and you know, I think if you if we can say that about such a massive programme, because 
you know, the word unprecedented has been thrown around a lot recently and as it should have been, but these are unprecedented times, aren't they? It's certainly a modern time. So for things like this to be able to work out, touch wood so far, relatively trouble free. And as I say that, something's probably going to break on the news tomorrow morning, but we'll cross that bridge. Um, <laughs> or oh, something. It doesn't matter what it is. But something, something will break, will break tomorrow. tomorrow morning. Yeah, um, <laughs> there will be news tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for it to for us to have got this far and long may it continue until, you know, the majority of the population are vaccinated, we're all healthy again and things start to return to some sort of semblance of normal. Um, you know, for the, for the relatively small problems we've had, I think it's, it's going pretty well so far. And slightly moving spheres, Alex, there's been some controversy between the students and leadership of the University of Birmingham, my previous homestead, um, about no de- detriment. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Um, I will. Um I've been quite vocal about it on uh, a few of the student community groups in recent weeks. I've been fortunate enough to have a meeting with the Guild about it afterwards, um, and they've been very accommodating. I think the issue, after fleshing it out with the Guild a bit, the issue isn't so much about the policy, because my 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 cohort has been quite fortunate. We've already got a no detriment in place that was enacted last year. Um, So any second year grades that will either boost or uh, maintain the grade I achieve in third year will be applied. Um, But the same won't be done for this current year groups. And I think that's that's the one thing that I found quite disappointing from university. They've kicked the can down the road again recently in their latest statement saying if uh, if the situation changes or deteriorates further, we'll look at the policy again. Um, But it's the clarity the students need because at the moment they're they're revising for exams that they don't know if they're going to count for much at the end of the year um at this point because we don't know whether we're going to have to go back into lockdown again whether this vaccine is going to help that's i think that's another thing we need to go back on the topic of vaccines is we need to look at is will they reduce infection rates or are they you know are you still able to transmit uh covid around in large communities like a student community for example um yeah i think that's um quite nebulous at the moment but um i believe sir patrick valance um chief medical advisor to the scientific advisor sorry to the government he said that vaccines should eventually um have an effect on transmission rates so it's looking good in that sense yeah, they should in the in the longer term i think the issue will be mm-hmm. short term because obviously the academic year will end in early june mid-june um so that that isn't and considering the foreign secretary came out today and said all adults will be offered a vaccine by september um mm. that means we can... and then other experts are saying that it will be june so yeah. the logical conclusion from that will be it might be somewhere in between which is obviously after the academic year is finished so there's every chance that situation could deteriorate once again um, however as we go towards the summer if we look uh, like we're in a similar situation as we were in 2020 where cases decline again um, so we should be okay but I think it's the the lack of clarity from not just UOB but from most university institutions that are causing a lot of problems at the moment um, as the Russell Group group has stated they're not looking to implement any new changes and they've said that many times now and the cited academic integrity is one of the reasons 
um, saying, you know, if we if we implement too many measures, then your degree will be practically worthless, which I, for one, disagree with. And uh, I can say um, at least 700 people who con- who interacted with my post stating that um, disagree with as well. Um, so students across the UK do need some clarity, um, not just from the government, but from their institutions, too. Um, the, the the sooner we can get a clear message about what this vaccine and what and what national measures will be put in place, the sooner universities can get back to normal, which I for one want very soon because this is my final year at UOB, and uh, I, I was saying to saying to yourself before the podcast started, I haven't managed to get back to work with Red Brick since March last year. Um. Hasn't there been some signs of movement from the university leadership? Because I think I saw a post um, the other day about introducing some mitigatory measures, or is that a bit false hope? I was told the day before by the Guild of Students that that would happen. Um, and then the next day it was released. The measures are they're a help um, for my cohort, final years. Um, all grades will now be looked at including first year grades when coming to a conclusion about um, your final degree classification. Um, They're going to now be comparing uh, last year's grades in exams compared to this year's to see if there's any disparity between the two so they can just grade boundaries and for degree classifications on the whole in this year um, the zone of um, I can't remember the exact phrase now which is going to bother me um, but the zone in which you can uh, have your final grade in uh, has been expanded. So if I wanted to get a first, um, it would usually have to be 68, 69 uh, to be within touching distance to have it considered to be a first. Um, but now it's down to 67 as well, which is it's a help. It's a help. Um, but on the grand scheme of things, it's not my cohort that's going to need the help. It's the current second years who are in a very who I would say a worse situation than I was in uh, this time last year, as I'd already had teaching up until March in person. I hadn't had any in- uninterrupted teaching aside from <laughs> the occasional strike. Um, kind of, occasional. Yeah. Um, so I, I was in a much better position than this, this year's second years are in. Um, so they do, they need some help from their institutions. Um, and I think as we get closer towards the summer exam season, I think that help will come um, because online teaching, um, it just it, it isn't the same. Uh, we don't have the same access to any sort of materials or resources that we used to. And it's that lack of social interaction with seminar groups, friends, lecturers. That really does help you learn at university. Uh, I can say that for a start. Zoom isn't quite the same. I think it's strange how this debate about the integrity of academic achievement wasn't really around when I was completing my degree uh, at the end of last year because we had some measures put into place where you didn't have to retake certain assignments or you didn't have to um, attain as many credits from your modules Um, and it seems that this year that universities especially Russell Group universities are going into the year with the universal standpoint of um, having a the least amount of measures possible and it seems strange how they can't just emulate what they did last year because that did help a lot of people it's a concern it's it's a concern and just one final thing on that um 
at the same time that they have refused to put any new measures in for current second years, um, they've also reduced the entry entry grade uh, requirements for incoming A-level students. Um, so they've allowed students to come in on a lesser lesser grade than would normally be allowed based on COVID, and that was the reasoning that they recognise the damage that COVID has done to uh, younger people's education. So we're going to be reducing the requirements whilst at the same time not putting the same level of protections in for their current students, which is, I think, resonating amongst the student community at UOB. And I believe there's a rent strike going on as well. And I think there's student action in places like Durham and uh, some Welsh universities. How is it happening in most universities? Do you know if it's how widespread is it? It's that I can count on my hand the number I know that there are um, rent strikes going on. Birmingham is one of them. However, UOB have offered a 100% rebate um, for the period that it's um, that UOB students are not allowed to come back to campus, um, which is about a month's rent, I believe. Um, so that's it's a good step forward. The rent strike was set up before that action was taken, so I think there was enough pressure applied on the university um, on that issue. But it is that will be a, another issue that will come into play as the term progresses, because teaching will start on the first of February, um, and if these national measures aren't changed soon they're going to have to look at rebating another month's rent, which is a hell of a lot of a uh, money to give up. And Jack, you are being a qualified journalist, aren't at university anymore, um, but you are doing some work at a, is it a bar that you work at, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, um, and that's definitely closed, isn't it now? I haven't been to work since October, November, which... On the face of it, it sounds great because I'm still being paid to basically sit at home and do nothing. But yeah, we are now getting to a point where just for something to do, frankly, it would be nice to go back to work. Um, we're all kind of a bit, you know, whilst accepting the fact that, you know, we whilst this is whilst this kind of thing is going on, you know, it's probably best not to be um, promoting or advertising people that come should come to the pubs and whatever. Um for our own sanity, I think we we all just really want to go back to work, um, and I can honestly say that's probably not something I'd have said maybe six eight months ago. So, um, you know, it hasn't been great. We're lucky to still be in jobs, frankly, um, which is the thing I always remind myself. You know, whenever whenever I sit and think, you know, the situation's dire or whatever, I still think, you know, every month I'm getting a paycheck. Thankfully, now it's not what I would have been earning if I was at work, but I'm still in a job and I'm still getting paid. So. I can't have too many complaints, but at the same time, you know, the talks of mental health problems by being sat at home every day, um, not, not going out, not interacting with people, as Alex said about lectures and seminars, um, you know, even just to be able to get out of your own house, which obviously you can do, but to go out, spend some time at work with people, even if nobody comes into the pub or bar or whatever, you know, you've got, you've got colleagues around you. Um, so even just spend like six hours a day, just doing nothing at a bar for a shift, (laughs) While, while you're with other people is still better really than, than being sat at home not really doing anything and I'm sure we've all found ways to pass the time but it's, it's not the same um, at so, the moment yeah, we're all quite looking forward to being back at the moment I'm imagining the bloke wiping the bar in the, uh never going to give you what music video <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> when there's no one there, just have a quick wipe of the bar. Okay, um, pretty much. I can, yeah, I can echo that entirely. <laughs> I'm currently sat in a pub. Um, that is where I live and where I work. Um, very much like Jack, I I haven't worked since November, um, late October, um, since the start of the apparently four week lockdown. Um, how how did that go? Um. <laughs> We'd only just gone up to tier two in Stourbridge, so we were we were very lucky. We were in tier one pretty much all summer up until October. Um so we were we were very busy. Um we we spent a lot of time putting in protective measures in the pub. I, I know I spent at least a oof, must have been over a month preparing the place, getting it ready, um, getting all the right equipment, screens, um the the, yeah. the cleaning company we we purchased our materials off didn't know what hit them uh the amount of sanitizer we were ordering off them uh was absolutely ridiculous oh, yeah. um but yeah i'm I'm currently sat in a place that i can't work which is very very monogamous um what i'm doing i'm, I'm getting up i'm trying to work on the dissertation which is um coming along very slowly um there's just not a lot of motivation there at the moment um but like Jack, I I, I want to get back to working too because I am lucky to still be on furlough. However, I I've gone from earning a, a decent amount of money every week working 40, 45 hours um, in a busy bar to earning seventy five pounds a week because it was based on when I was part time in twenty nineteen. Um, so yeah, it it's a it, it's a big hit on on my wages although i'm i haven't got any expenses <laughs> obviously we, we aren't going out at the moment um but it's a it's a big hit so i can only imagine how difficult it is for people who were working a lot of hours in the lead up to the lockdown and still have those bills to pay and the rent to meet um obviously i think i do believe the rent strike has been extended um uh, only momentarily i don't know how long it's been extended for but it was done at the last second um quite recently so there is a lot of anxiety because people can't plan. No, no, they, yeah, you're completely right they, they can't plan for the future um i mean even in people with the I, it's parents who i feel sorry for who are working zero hour jobs like i was they've got children who they don't know if they're going to be at school one minute or the next thanks to mr williamson um they don't know how they're going to meet the next lot of food bills because their furlough isn't quite cutting it because it's from based on a year ago's wage rather than what they were earning up until the lockdown, which I is a massive policy point, which I think is quite frankly wrong. Um, I am biased, but um, I, I when, when there's such a discrepancy between the uh, last eight weeks of wages up until the lockdown compared to the eight weeks of wages that they're comparing it to in 2019, that can't, that can't be right because, circumstances are very different a year apart so there are extra financial pressures on a lot of people so the sooner we can get the economy up and going again um let's just avoid eat out to help out again let's not do that <laughs> you can you yeah, say so you're I biased but it, you're biased because you've had the experience and you've heard people talking to you about their experiences and when you're hearing details about that you can't help but have certain opinions about policy yep. so it's not a criticism at this point i suppose with the with your pub, the Chancellor has said that he's deployed some finance financial support. Has that benefited yes. you in any way? Um, for our particular business structure, um, the financial support has been a massive help. 
Um, it covers our bills, so we're okay. All of our staff are furloughed. Um, we we aren't going into massive debt trying to stay open. So, and we've also um, had agreements with our with our company who own the bar about like rent and such. So we are quite fortunate. There are going to be so so many pubs like us that won't make it through this lockdown um, because their their outgoings are just too much compared to what is coming in. So the support for for my pub is ample, but for for larger pubs it might not be. Um, and that if you can think back to around the start of this lockdown or just before um, with Boris Johnson announcing, I, I can't remember, was it the, the thousand pounds, was it? The additional thousand, which, which yeah. that was just a kick in the teeth. I mean, must, there's so many hot pubs, restaurants, uh, cocktail bars, especially in city centre venues that are really struggling at the moment financially. Because um, if, you, if you think about furlough, yes, we are being paid our wage, but the employers are still having to pay national insurance contributions. And for some pubs, that, they don't have that sort of that sort of float in their bank account to pay out. Um, and if you are a city centre bar, your rent is absolutely extortionate. Um, so that when when they announced the £1,000, it, it was a kick in the teeth. Obviously, I'm grateful that they've now introduced a new set of economic support, but it can't go on forever. We all know that. Um, and as we get to the, the summer, cases are going to continue to drop, hopefully, um, as they have in the last few days. Um, so hopefully pubs and bars will be allowed to open soon, as well as restaurants, people can get back to work. The only thing we can hope for is that we don't have a similar situation towards the end of 2021, where cases start to rise again, the tier system is kicked back in, um, loads of places go from tier one to tier four overnight. If we ever repeat of that, then it will almost certainly be a nail in the coffin for the hospitality industry. Well, um, with the vaccine rollout, there's more likely that that's not going to happen. But as we've learned from the last year or so, we can't rule anything out. And Chris Whitty said himself that in December, we may have to introduce some sort of restrictions, especially around Christmas. Um, and of course, um, restrictions are going to be lifted in a tiered way that ministers are talking about um, uh, this past day or so um what you're saying about business rates and stuff um i suppose there's a chance that the chancellor may decide to maybe make another statement um towards the end of this lockdown uh, to the commons and say that like uh the end of the uh, last major lockdown in the spring maybe suspend business rates somewhat or uh, decrease them and i suppose it, that would help it would help quite a lot. um but it wouldn't apply to my pub in particular um VAT mm. was the thing that was slashed to, I do believe, quite heavily towards the end of the last lockdown in the summer. Um, and it really applied only to places that serve food. So McDonald's had a VAT slash, if you remember. So they were serving food for a ridiculous price. Um, yeah, there were signs everywhere, even in yeah. Costa, that was explaining what VAT was. Yeah, and it didn't apply to... And saying why your coffee is cheaper and I work part-time yeah. in the supermarket at the moment um and on the box all the boxes it's got vat free and especially with the crisps mm. i've noticed but mine, <laughs> mine didn't apply to our pub though because we're a wet lead pub so we don't serve food as our main outgoing mm. so we weren't eligible for that vat cut um so we were still paying the full 20 20 vat whilst mcdonald's was paying five percent um and obviously you could... and you could argue that smaller pubs like yourself are more needing of that VAT cut than massive multi-international brands like McDonald's. It was an oversight by the uh, 
the chancellor and the government it was i think it was i don't i don't envy their job in having to implement these measures in such a short time i don't think the prime minister gives them a lot of warning um i think it's oh by the way we will be opening up the entire economy tomorrow get something ready and i'll see you in the morning um i i, I don't envy his job however there is a culture in britain of local um, local pubs that are very central to the community which are being forgotten ahead of these big 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 chains like Weatherspoons. Um, we, we aren't eligible for a lot of you know incentives or tax breaks or VAT breaks that these large companies are getting and it is ripping the heart out of some communities I mean we've had a, quite a lot of pub closures around here um, of pubs that you wouldn't have thought that were you know doing terribly but that we were very lucky we were busy we got everything right first time and I'll, I'll pat myself on the back on back for that we 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 implemented measures so that we could open efficiently and we we were pretty practically full every night but I can't say the same for every other pub in the area so mine is a very nuanced story of what post-lockdown pubs have been um whereas I could only imagine what other pubs are having to go through with the increased measures and restrictions they went through I, I i can sadly see many of them not bothering to reopen if they're not convinced that when they do allow pubs to open that those restrictions will still be in place and with pubs on the downfall across the country anyway this could not have happened at no. the worst time really um and on the day that um joe biden well yesterday i think he announced it to the uh $109 trillion incentive package for the economy. Maybe Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak may think of something similar for the end of lockdown. We shall see. Um, as I've mentioned, uh, England's chief medical officer, Chris Whittier, suggested that restrictions may have to be in place in December after maybe a break from them in the summer um, and autumn. But Professor Neil Ferguson, who's become quite a celebrity in the last year or so, has also suggested that things may not get back to normal, in quotations there, until the autumn or winter. So there are some uh, inconsistencies to an extent there between the experts. Um, we forget that we haven't yet um, gone over the peak. We may have hit the peak, as you were just saying about rates uh, going down. Um, and the arrival of spring, as seen by the first wave, it won't promise instant sunshine. Um, and the lifting of, of the restrictions will all depend upon the success of vaccines and social distancing measures. Uh, during the west of this month and into February and into March, so it will be definitely be an incremental process similar to that seen last year. Um, but Chris Whitty, during a disagreement of when spring is with the Prime Minister, which was a bit strange, um, has suggested that the restrictions may be starting to be cut out from the spring onwards. Um, and the PM, of course, will want to see that happen. There was a spitting, Im spitting image um, uh, sketch about that. It was with Thatcher. Um, uh, what's it called? Hip, hip, hip hop or something? I'm surprised I've not seen that. Oh, bloody hell. It's absolutely brilliant. The speaker's just got a, a, a deck of turntables in front of him. Um <laughs> And they're all sat on the sat on the benches, bopping, all tripping on acid. 
Well, I found my new petition to Parliament. And replace PMQs with a weekly rave. In it, give Lindsay Hoyle the DJ deck. I don't <laughs> think he'd be that keen. <laughs> who would be? Who would be the rave dealer in that? Who Who would be the one lurking in the corner with some dodgy packet? Ian Duncan. <laughs> Ian Duncan. Oh my God! Yeah. In recent weeks, to those in the Whitehall know, the word Hancockian, any guesses as to what that, that has become the meaning for? or the word? It for? sounds rather lewd, I'm not touching that. I'd, I'd go for just outright lying, um, <laughs> or I've saying something it, of an untrue nature. <laughs> the Times has defined it as an adjective, over-optimistic. So I think it's safe to say that it's not held within that high regard in number 10 or Whitehall um, in general um, and I think it's safe to say that within sections of the public that is emulated um, so he may be on the move um, as health secretary um, and I think he was installed anyway like much of the cabinet um, because of his support to Boris Johnson in the Conservative leadership com- contest and the prospect of a no-deal Brexit um, for one of the top jobs. Um, also, can you guess who the second person I have on my list is? Oh, it's a tough one. It's a 50-50. Um, I'm going to go for Pretty Patel. She's oh, there. That's a, well, that's a good shout. I haven't thought but of that. Is Gavin Williamson? Oh, he's my number yeah, three. He's my number three. Yeah. I think Boris Johnson may be biding his time before he can get rid of him. Um and it's quite a fall from grace. He was Cameron's ex-advisor um, before he became an MP, and he was tipped to even be a future Prime Minister. Um, that may be beyond him now, but um, we've had some comebacks in the last couple of years, not to mention Priti Patel, who was sacked by Theresa May, but she's come back as Home Secretary. So fortunes um, can be changed pretty rapidly in today's political climate. Um a name I'd like to throw in as a possible replacement for Gavin Williamson would be the MP for North West Durham and former Williamson, Williamson advisor Richard Holden. Um, he also has close connections with the Prime Minister after he worked with him on his leadership campaign. So a relationship maybe with the Prime Minister. And depending on how much high esteem Boris Johnson still holds Gavin Williamson, maybe he'd like um, him as a sort of natural replacement. But um, who knows? Um, so Priti Patel, we've just mentioned her, along with Robert Jenrick, they have had some controversies, obviously, in the, with their times in office. Jenrick, the housing secretary, um, allegedly giving someone a housing contract, um, and also Priti Patel, after she had been allegedly bullying, um, Johnson, like Gavin Williamson, has stuck by them quite staunchly, as with Cummings as well. But um, as we've seen with Dominic Cummings, he can change his mind and be quite very tactical and force them out um, if he gets sick of them. Um, and Priti Patel and Robert Jenrick, um, may, this may mean that they're quietly demoted or replaced by more off-the-radar, quieter, cleaner figures for a sort of post-Brexit, to an extent post-Covid world, where rebuilding the country um, is strange because rebuilding the country is quite associated with Labour, post-war Labour, but uh, this time it will be the Conservatives. Um, so, Priti Patel, Robert Jemrick, Gavin Williamson, Matt Hancock, do you agree with those assessments? 
Yes, I agree with them. At least, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. That's you discuss. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, we, we like to be concise here. <laughs> do you think that uh, any others might be on the move I, or on the way out? I have Dominic Raab as a potential one. Um, I also have Dominic Raab. Um, mm. It's like we're playing top trumps, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think he could be another one for the chop, and I don't think it's because of any necessary failure. Um, but I think a clean slate as a foreign secretary going into a post-Brexit um, Atlanticized world. Um, I think someone with a bit more know-how in that area is going to be needed um, now that we're out of the European Union. Um, I think it would be a tactical replacement and I don't think he'd be necessarily removed from cabinet like the others might. I think they he just might be put into a lesser role. Um I agree. Um, but on on some of the others you mentioned, um, Jenrick, I am I'm astounded that he's still in his role. Um, uh, after after that audio was released of him chatting with the the uh, building developer and then receiving a donation to the party for a dinner, um, then receiving the contract to prevent contract going to council housing in a labour area of London I believe it was um, uh, that that would have been the nail in the coffin in any other circumstance in history but during a pandemic pre-Brexit deal Britain it, you get a free pass in this cabinet you couldn't be seen to be sacking anyone at this time so I agree with your, your assessment that this reshuffle will come as a fresh start um, you know, moving into a new area, area, era for uh, uh, for Britain. Um, Patel, um, yeah, sorry, carry on. On Dominic Raab, um, as I said, I had him down as well. Um, I think he's he's quite expendable, being a being principally there for his hard Brexit advocacy. Mm-hmm. Like you say, also he hasn't had any major scandals since taking up the position, and I think the PM might have some personal affection for him. Um, being that um, he took over um, basically his job whilst he was incapacitated in hospital um, last year. Um, So we'll see what happens there. A potential replacement may be the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, who um, has been quite um, vocal in the past year. And people have been praising him, including uh, Tory MPs. So he might be quite a popular uh, promotee there. Um, but Rob, like you say, might be moved to another job in cabinet. I think that's quite likely. Or Johnson may not want to go with a sort of Thatcher Macmillan Knight of the Long Knives and maybe just move a few people around and maybe fill a few junior minister posts of people who might have more power than their posts might suggest. Maybe a bit of more clandestine uh, workings there, but uh, who knows. Um, an interesting person who I've got down maybe for a promotion just to mix it up a bit, is Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary. Um, I think because he's made quite a few media appearances, quite a few tricky media appearances on the Andrew Marr show and via press conferences, and he's very loyally towed the government's levelling up message, um, as well as introducing some policies that maybe um, prove that in practice. Um, And he's been quite, um, compared to other 
uh, cabinet members quite eloquent in those appearances. So uh, he may be up for a promotion to maybe one of the great offices. Who knows? Um, or maybe just support around a bit. Who knows? Um, also, there's talk of Sajid Javid coming back in some capacity. Um, have you heard that as well? I think that's been quite widespread, hasn't it? I haven't. No, this Ooh. is the first time hearing it. It's been rumoured for a while. Um, he's been quietly sat on the back benches, which is very unusual for someone ousted from their job unwillingly, um, especially when it was done in the manner it was with Cummings basically saying, we're going to merge 10 and 11 together, whether you like it or not. Um, so I, I, I am surprised he's been so quiet, although the circumstances around uh, governance at the moment suggests he was it was better to remain quiet than be critical as I do believe Steve Baker has found out um, in recent days trying to uh, advocate against the Prime Minister's policies only to be full flat on his face um, which was it was quite comical to see that actually um, you know I'm such a supporter of Boris Johnson write a letter to all the MPs saying we can't support any more lockdowns it will be Boris Johnson's leadership on the line then to come out four hours later and say, I support the Prime Minister 100%. Um, it, it's definitely a time of changeability with opinions. Yeah, it is. Um, so, yeah, Javid could be one I could see come back very easily. Um, he has. He I has, think yeah. maybe, perhaps, in his old post of Home Secretary. Very possible. He's very experienced in that. And if you are going to be leading um, a post-Brexit Britain, you need someone with a bit of know-how to run um, the, the, the economy and... Uh, the home de- home department. So, with I, I would keep Sunak where he is. He's doing a decent job. Um, I wouldn't consider Javid going back to his old role. Um, and Sunak crucially is popular. He is. He's he's a he's a vote winner, um, which is uh, very un you know unlike a Tory politician. Um, it's usually who loses the least um, in terms of public appearances. But he's he's the one who's been received very well by the public. Um, and I have to say, I've 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 enjoyed his press conferences. He's been infor- informative. He hasn't been condescending. He's analysed the situation very carefully. So he's staying where he is. I think that's agreed amongst all of us. Um, so yeah, plus the hoodies. Yeah, the, the hoodies. Very ca- very smart, casual attire that re- really sold the image. Um, uh, but yeah, j- j- him and his team know how to put a photo they, together. They- <laughs> That's definite. Um, so, another name. Speaking of the of the success of British Asians in the last few years, um, another name with regards to perhaps a junior ministerial role or maybe even um, a senior cabinet job is Sakib Bati. Um, he's MP for Meriden and he's the former president of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce, Alex. Um, and like I say, he's one of the many. British Asian Conservative MPs whose stock is on the up at the moment. Um, and of course, Boris Johnson will want to um, maintain the diversity of his cabinet because I believe it was the most diverse cabinet ever, his last one, or this one, I should say. Uh, so that could be interesting. Um, also, a curveball, maybe, Lee Anderson, who's recently defected from Labour and was elected at the last election in December 2019. Um, he was a very active Labour member and an office manager. You may have heard him in the House of Commons. He's quite a shouty speaker. Um, and I think if I showed you a photo, you'd recognise him straight away. Um, he may also be drafted in in some capacity, most likely not a cabinet post. I mean, definitely not a cabinet post. 
but maybe a junior minister um, of some sort to to sort of advise on how to keep Labour voters on side that uh, the Tories helped, uh, the Tories convinced in uh, December to vote for them uh, in the red wall seats. As I say, that's quite unlikely, but maybe something the Prime Minister might consider. Um, so Nasadi Javid, we've gone through uh, Sunak, Etel, um, another person, Liz Truss, who's International Trade Secretary at the moment. She's obviously put together some trade deals with Japan and Canada, etc. last year. She's been hailed as a success uh, by the Conservative Party and, crucially, the grassroots. She seems very popular with grassroots. So she might be in for um, a promotion. Or a PM might decide that she's been so successful in her job at the moment that uh, he might just keep her in that job. And I think that's probably the most likely outcome. Um, yeah, so carry on. Also, probably, probably the most characterful person would be Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's probably the prime example of arch-Brexiteers in the Cabinet. And I think the Prime Minister might want to unload him because he's quite a controversial figure, particularly. And he's made some quite controversial comments about Grenfell in particular. So he might want a new leader of the Commons. Yeah, I I agree with that one. Um, He was initially appointed to leader of the House of Commons, as um, many in that Cabinet were as a thank you for his support from the ERG for Johnson's nomination for the Conservative leader. It was, I I was shocked when he was appointed to it. He was always a bit of a, you know, the the quirky Victorian MP on the back benches who'd quote some uh, novel from the 1700s or a poem. Um, So he... A feature which I suspect that the Prime Minister might, find quite endearing because he's quite prone to that yeah, he's as quite well. prone to just <laughs> quoting uh, latin verbatim um so alas yes um we do love we love, we love it alas, um yeah. but he i think he is one that could just be <laughs> quietly shunned away and replaced with someone a bit more shiny um as you said with uh liz truss or the truss um as she should be properly addressed um Yes, um, I assure you, you'll be receiving a letter from the uh, Foreign Trade Department tomorrow morning. I'm sure we're going to that. I mean, they're sending they're sending letters to most of the population of the yeah. globe yeah. at the moment, trying to get trade. Yeah, so. um, yeah she, she is. Um, she was quite vocal, um, you know, pre-COVID, um, in her support for Brexit and Boris Johnson. She's quite. She's very loyal to him and, and the cause. And she has successfully, you know, achieved some notable trade deals. Whether she's up to the task in Boris Johnson's eyes of negotiating one with the United States, as we'll get on to later, is, is, another, mm. is another task altogether. We've got a very new ambassador after Kim Derrick was forced out of his role. Um, after his um, recorded, I would say, blunder, but he doesn't regret it at all about what he said about President Trump. Um, or soon to be former president. Um, so we have got a very new team in charge of uh, the American side of things and foreign trade. So whether he opts to put some more experienced heads in there, I'm not too sure to steady up the, the ship on that side. I'm not too sure. But she hasn't put a foot wrong yet. So I'd be very surprised if she's removed in the next reshuffle. And unless something terribly goes wrong, in the immediate future, then I can't see her leaving. 
Jack, would you replace her with a more uh, prominent America file, if I could say, if I could say that, um, <laughs> as well as the Foreign Secretary, or would you do something different? Um, I think a lot of that depends on what kind of hardball game Joe Biden's team are prepared to play with the UK. Um, we saw them take quite a hard stance on the Good Friday Agreement, didn't we? Um, just before a Brexit bill was agreed, um, incoming President Biden saying he fully supported the Good Friday Agreement and didn't want to see anything happen to that. Um, and he was prepared to do whatever he could, whatever he had to do. Obviously, that term gets thrown around. But if we'd have still been talking about negotiations now, uh, uh, an incoming President Biden said he was prepared to do whatever it takes to make sure the Good Friday Agreement stays intact. So I think it depends really on on how how hardball President Biden and his team are prepared to be. Um, I, I don't think there'd be much, there certainly I don't think would be much incentive to, to play hardball with the UK. Obviously, you know, a deal's got to work on both sides, but the special relationship goes back decades, doesn't it? So I don't think there's an incentive to, to kind of try and, you know, force the UK's hand in whatever, um, in, in any aspect, really. Um, so... I don't know. I, I, Liz Truss, as we've said, seems to be pulling trade deals left, right and centre. Um, they may not be the kind of massive trade deal that we had with the EU, and that's fair enough. You know, we, we're, we're fresh out of the EU, so give that time, perhaps. Um, but those, for, for want of a better phrase, those, those dotted lines are getting signed, aren't they? So I, I would be tempted, at least initially, to, to give her a chance because I, I do think that, that common ground can be found with, with a, a US team, the, the, particularly the team that Joe Biden's put together. Um, you know, this we're talking about a president who, who pretty much ran his campaign on saying, I, I'm the candidate because I know how to work with other people. Um, and his staff pretty much reflect that too now. So I'd be very surprised if, the US played hard to hard to get in terms of signing a trade deal or figuring out the, the specifics of a trade deal. So I'd be tempted to leave Liz Truss where she is for now and, um, Joe Biden, and give her a chance. Um, his favourite area of study and policy is foreign policy. Um, so he'd be very eager to... He's recently announced that he's going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Mm. He'll probably uh, re-seek to uh, rehash and... Um, remake the deal with Iran, the nuclear deal with Iran, um, obviously join the WTO in due course. Yeah. So, um, but another point to make is that um, the Democrats um, will seek to make ties with France and Germany as well as the UK and continue that special relationship. Um, also, they have quite a lot on their plate at the moment and, and a trade deal with the UK might be quite low on their priority list. So, sure. we may see sure. we may see one this year at some point, but it probably won't be until, say, autumn, maybe, that, that it starts there, really There's a lot going. of domestic issues, yeah, that, that President Biden's going to face. Um, Impeaching his I'm predecessor, sure we'll to say the least. Don't ruin the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ruin the fun. We've got to keep people listening. Um, yes, that, that, that is a large part of what's coming up. Um, and I don't, I'm sure you guys have seen the, the slew of um, executive orders that he's prepared to sign on day one. So Broken the there, is, there is certainly... Yeah, there's certainly a lot of work to be done, shall we say, um, in that first 100 days that, that people like to talk about in the US. So plenty to think about, for sure, for sure. And the US-UK trade deal is definitely a part of that. Anyway, plenty more of that to come in our second episode of the, of the 2021 <laughs> preview. 
the the US uh, episode. We need a studio audience. <laughs> a Zoom audience. Yeah. <laughs> I don't quite like the current of, of the of the question time audience um, because they put them all on mute. So unless they're yeah. asked to just to, to ask a question or debate one of the panelists, it's completely silent. So when it, when um, I can't remember what Tory MP was, it was the the children's minister or something was on there talking about the. the Chartwell's meals. They they had an entire screen of people watching, just similar, so loudly shaking their heads. And that's all they could do. They were just, they were making it so visible that they agreed, yet they couldn't say a word. It's just this MP sat in front of this wall of people shaking their, their head at them. It was just surreal because she has to look at them and she's like I can, I I can continue talking, but I feel like I can't. <laughs> just see of disapproving faces. Yeah. <laughs> just look at Fiona's eyes, straighten her eyes. So you just Help. look at the audience. <laughs> the f- the, so the final huge event that we're predicting this year is the is the prospect of the breakup of the union, which is centuries old from the uh, 17th century, James I, obviously. Um, And Scotland in particular, because polling has repeatedly suggested that independence for the first time is the majority opinion in Scotland. Um, So straight up, do you think it will happen? No. Good grief, what a question. Um, Okay, Alex has a more more solid answer than I do. Uh, we'll, we'll use his answer for me to buy some time. Will the honourable <laughs> gentleman give way? <laughs> yeah, I yield my time. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I'll have your thirty seconds. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, in my honest opinion, no. In the current state of the UK and Scottish economies, it's going to be very easy for a Remain or however they want to call their campaign to to say yes or no, however the campaign is called, to say, look, we're not in any financial situation to um, to, to suddenly break away from the union. Um, things are very fragile. If, if we leave now, we could plunge ourselves into even more economic trouble. There's still not no guarantee that they'd be allowed to join the European Union very, very quickly, which I think is the, the, the Nicola Sturgeon's aim. Um, that, that would be the main the main driving force behind a yes vote. Um, would be rejoining the European Union. That would be a very powerful political tool for her to use. Whether She's very that's... much using that to its full potential. Yes, and I, 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 more than anything, I'd, I'd suggest. I think the central aim is still independence, but she's using Europe as an, as an excuse because Scotland obviously voted to remain. Whether that will, will be a, a tired a tired out point by the time a referendum eventually happens is another question because Brexit as a whole is a non-issue at the moment amongst most areas of society it was something that happened on the 1st of january and we were like oh okay that, that that's that was something that we thank god it's done <laughs> oh I, i've missed that for the last last 12 weeks. <laughs> um but I, I think it might be a tired out tool and there's there's talk of gordon brown coming back um to head the scottish labor party now that richard what's his face um as uh as yeah, resigned, yeah. Role. and then that's my point i couldn't tell you his second name um uh, it begins with a W, but 
I, can, I must confess I can't remember it either. That's, I think that was the problem with Scottish Labour. They had no real strong identity. He was made a leader under Corbyn, I believe. Yeah, um, the last standing Corbynite within the majority of the Labour leadership. Yeah, so I think the issue with Scottish Labour up until now has been there's been no strong identity either way on Brexit or any other issue, which was a, a big issue of, of the uh, 2019 election, which is something I'm doing my dissertation on. Um so I think replacing um, their outgoing leader with someone like Gordon Brown, who is one of note, one of note and of great popularity in Scotland. I mean, a former prime minister, you know, made sure Britain didn't go completely down the toilet in 2008. And as he self-confessed in the Commons, he saved the world. Yes, um, yeah, watch that clip. Isn't um, again? So he is very popular um, and he would almost certainly be a no voter. So he would be a very powerful political tool to have run against a pro-leave Nicola Sturgeon uh, campaign, as well as, so you've already mentioned the Hollywood elections are set to come up quite soon. Um, Imposing Gordon Brown as the person against Nicola Sturgeon, that could eat away at the SNP vote quite substantially, which would be what, you know, many unionists would hope for in Scotland. Um, a weakened SNP is probably the best way to rule out any sort of uh, potential indie ref too. I also, I, I don't think Scottish independence is going to happen. Certainly not with the next Holyrood elections. Um, for the simple reason that Boris Johnson won't let it happen. Um, what, you know, the the one issue that he doesn't really seem to have changed his opinion on is. Um, is Scottish independence, isn't it? He said from day one that it would, the 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 last referendum vote was a once in a lifetime, once in a generation vote, and that's that's how we saw it then, and that's how he sees it now. Um, so I completely agree with what Alex said about um, the EU leaving the EU as the UK um, is definitely going to be a political tool for use in terms of saying um, an independent Scotland could get back into the EU, which seems plausible to me. Um, as Alex said, timeframes might be an issue there. It's, uh, it's certainly not going to be like Holyrood elections plus one day that Scotland gets back or, or independence plus one day that Scotland gets back into the EU. Um, but I, I do think this particular set of Holyrood elections is going to be interesting purely because it will be kind of a litmus test for the SNP in a post-Brexit trade deal being agreed world, if that makes sense. Um, it'll be interesting to see now how the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon's messages carry now that that trade deal has been agreed um, uh, and the, the, the Brexit process is, is I, I say, with the most crossed fingers I've ever had coming to an end, um, whether that message still resonates with people, um, whether it resonates more now that we've left and, and Brexit's coming to an end or whether it resonates less because, as Alex quite rightly said, most people are just kind of it's a done deal now. Um, so I think a large part of that, the the kind of the haste, I suppose, to to try and call for India F2 will come at the end of those um, or when all the votes have been tallied, really. Um, if you if you see SNP gains, which I think would be, is that even possible? I assume it must be, but the, the can't think, be, there can't be many seats yeah. left in Holyrood for them to gain. I think that's um, an interesting idea you put forward, though, because um, I think the SNP, the general rule has been SNP dominance even before the referendum in 2016. Mm, so mm. I think that may continue. And it's a question of why SNP voters are voting SNP. Um, 
is it because of the independence question or is it purely because they're an alternative, a powerful alternative who can actually make some policies go through Holyrood? Um, a third of SNP voters were also Brexit supporters, for example. And Scottish... It's interesting you say that, actually. I must say, as, as a Green Party person myself, um, it's easy to forget that parties like the Greens and SNP are more than just one policy. You know, mm. you know, whilst the SNP have been effectively governing Scotland, that they have had to deal with every part of government policy, same as if as if any party got elected. Um, you know, it's easy to say the Greens are the party of the environment and SNP are the party of independence, but you can't get into power without a full raft of policy. You can't, you can't just say the SNP are the party of independence and therefore have no say on education policy or health policy or whatever. So maybe Scottish voters just think the SNP are doing a good job full stop and in day-to-day governing. The fact that, like you say, they do do day-to-day governing, um, that is the Conservatives, especially the Prime Minister's go-to defence uh, of uh, his policies against um, Ian Blackford in the Commons. He says that you should be concentrating on other areas of yeah. Scottish government rather than just independence. Um, and I think that is something that Scottish voters will have to consider whilst placing their votes in May. Uh, also, another point I think is important to make is that Scottish Remain voters, um, those that Sturgeon claim were betrayed by the uh, 2016 referendum, they're quite keen on unions, the European Union. So they may not <laughs> want to see the United Kingdom Union break down as well. The, What's in I a name, eh? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that people overall are hungry for more national disruption on the scale of Brexit or COVID after uh, they sort of improve towards, hopefully, towards the end of uh, this year. Uh, we shall see. Will they want another split? Another year's multiple years long negotiation you know period. what we need after all this time is some more chaos i think like, <laughs> it's been a pretty dull couple of years isn't it not a lot's really happened so why no. not just inject some controversy in there like i don't know i can't think of something um let's let's make ireland one country again <laughs> why not <laughs> life's boring right now <laughs> that's a real possibility in obviously um i know right <laughs> but obviously a few bit down the line but i completely agree with what adam said which is i don't think there is an appetite for more nationalism um in in global politics at the moment that we are seeing a shift away from especially after covid with you know national economies being completely devastated there it's even more important now that you have strong ties um with those around you and you know, those in unions, such as the European Union, uh, the United Kingdom, um, it's it's more more important than ever to actually have those strong ties with your neighbouring countries. Uh, we've seen the shift away from nationalism in America quite substantially, um, as as I'm sure Jack will talk about in our next segment. Um, we've also, although we haven't really seen that translate in Britain. Um, Although it's arguable, in my research so far, it's arguable um, whether the 2019 election was a nationalist outcry or just a continuation of trends against the Labour Party. Um, and I, I would argue the latter. Um, so these Hollywood elections will be that litmus test, as already been said, for further nationalism. Um, 
within the United Kingdom. And I, I personally don't think the Scottish people are going to want even more chaos and turbulence. You've just been thrown out of the European Union in your eyes. Your economy is in a weaker state than it's ever been in history. Um, you're in and out of lockdowns. Are you really going to want to separate yourself from the rest of the United Kingdom after the question has already been asked and answered once before? Um, and my answer to that would probably be no. It's interesting what you say about the last election being a nationalist election, because I'd argue that it was a wider cultural election, because as we've seen since that election, polling has consistently, I think there's one or two occasions where Labour are actually um, just above them. Um, Despite the narrowing of polls since Corbyn's left the leadership job, there have been quite a consistent lead from the Conservatives. And I think that's, People are voting now for parties not on class or job basis. It's They are of a specific cultural identity and they are sticking with the party that represents them. Yeah, I would and I think, agree. Um, I, I've, I've spoken to a few people as part of my uh, dissertation research um, from the constituency I'm looking at um, and they would they would say the exact same thing. This is... The 2019 election was not... A one-off. Um, the Brexit uh, framing of it certainly did help it um, help events, you know, progress a lot faster than they probably would have when it comes to the culture change that you're talking about. But this working class shift away from the Labour Party, um, like you said, isn't as much to do with being working class as it probably would have been understood in other contexts. It was wholly, you know, leave or remain. And what did that mean for you as, as a people? So the, the, the lower socioeconomic areas that shifted from uh, Labour traditionally to Conservative, it had absolutely, I wouldn't say a lot to do with um, Brexit itself. It was what was, how were these people represented by the party that they traditionally voted for? And the Labour Party had lost that working class identity and their, you know, their their grassroots identity, if if you will, um, with the with the working man. And they saw the Conservative Party, you know, ironically or not, as that party to represent those values. And bringing that into the, the Scottish context, the the Scottish Labour Party under Richard Leonard and Jeremy Corbyn's oversight had no no identity of their own really it was it was that in limbo th- you know issue that we had with the, the the english labor party there was no strong stance on brexit there's no real strong stance on independence so it it it, it it'll be interesting to see who the next leader of the labor party will be and whether that will impact the, the prospect of scottish independence uh going forward so as i've mentioned gordon brown i think that would heavily play into the no votes hands very very handsomely um that would be a very strong figure with a strong voice with a strong message um so if we can get a a leader who who can penetrate through the messaging of the smp that is dominating scotland i think they stand a very good chance of preventing any further talk of an indie ref too i think it's very interesting what you say about the labor party because 
we've gone from quite a huge gulf in policy between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson in the last election. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto being called the 1970s manifesto by newspapers. Huge programme of nationalisation, etc. And that is continuing to some extent with Starmer, who's seeking to appease uh, some of the Corbynites in his party with some nationalisations. And in some respect, those policies, for example, uh, the nationalisation of broadband, maybe, um, and another couple, maybe the ridding of tuition fees, have become, to some extent, nearly mainstream. Yeah. And I think um, we have two leaders in Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson who are as closely aligned policy-wise, economic and broader uh, political policies, all, all, all policies political, obviously, but you know what I mean, um, as broadly aligned as maybe in recent history. Yeah, I'd argue, you know, and going is... back towards the Blair years, um, so yes, we are yeah. seeing a complete... Work. And I'd argue that yeah. um, culture is what differentiates between the two, with Starmer, uh, for example, kneeling for the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, very much playing into the hands of um, different sectors of the population, um, with Boris Johnson also seeking to do that with uh, tweets and his levelling up agenda. So both are starting to broaden their horizons electorate-wise. Yep, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and, you know, when you do add those factors in to the, the context of Scotland, um, you, you do have to consider that Nicholas, Nicholas Sturgeon's messaging is, is slowly, it is dying out amongst the political mainstream, you know, moving away from, uh, moving away from Britain as a whole. It isn't, it isn't popular as, as it was. Obviously, the, the polling suggests that um, voting yes in a, such a referendum um, is more popular than it ever has been or is you know, currently leading. But we've seen how quickly polling can change um, in the run-up to elections. Especially when campaigning. Yeah, ca- campaigning is a massive aspect to this. And I'm not sure how strong a yes campaign would be in the current political climate. Um, and we've still yet to see, as I've already just said, how Labour would mobilise against or for this, actually. Um, obviously, I, I would assume uh, that any future Scottish Labour leader would campaign for, for no, um, they would need to take a strong stance on this. They've been the party of inaction and have recently been labelled by the Conservatives, you know, under Kistarma, really, um, the party of hindsight and um, just being nitpicky, really. Um, so they need to take a lead on on an issue. And if it is Scottish, refer- if it is Scottish independence, then they need to make sure they commit to it because... Labour's indecision in recent years, especially in 2019, has cost them. So if they're going to make any sort of electoral gains in the upcoming Holyrood or the one after that or the one after that or any sort of make any sort of inroads within the Scottish electorate, they're going to need to take a strong stance. And I think Scottish independence could be that stance for Scottish Labour to make a resurgence. It's interesting what you say about who is installed as Labour leader and what they advocate, because Keir Starmer obviously has come out saying that um, they are the party of a no vote to independence, but the party of dissolution. And that is the brand since Tony Blair, really, that the Labour Party have gone for. Um, Jeremy Corbyn not focusing on Scotland as much. Um, But if you have somebody of the same opinion of Starmer, 
um, a note, but with dissolution. That stance may be too complicated um, for to be absorbed quickly by the electorate. So maybe they may want to go for a no vote with sort of a subtext of more dissolution, or they could go for the party of dissolution. Who knows? Um, we shall see what happens. We shall see what May brings. And we all agree that constitutional independence might not happen, but Nicola Sturgeon will certainly try to get a mandate for it. It may even end up in the courts if Johnson refuses it. We shall see. Um, and as we've seen by the last well, sort of 10 years, really, politics is a very febrile atmosphere at the moment. So things could change um, extremely quickly. But thank you very much both for joining me of this podcast. And as has been mentioned a few times during this podcast, we will be back in the short term, I assure you, with uh, a US version of the prequel to 2021, the preview, I should say, to 2021. And we shall see you then. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much for watching our live stream, all night live stream of the US election um, in November. And I believe it reached over 200 people. So thank you very much. We were only expecting two or three. Um, so that was amazing thank you um, and we shall see you on our next podcast available on spotify apple podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and also in the meantime check out our posts on the moot points website the link to which you can find on our twitter page thank you very much for what for watching for listening and thank you very much goodbye have you you guys ever listened to um I think it's five live, um, BBC Radio yeah. Five. When the football, have you ever listened when the football's on at all? Every after every sentence, every two sentences, there'd be a sound effect after what the one was. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> this sentence is sponsored by the <laughs> <laughs> like springs going off. I think there's like a helicopter sound, siren. <laughs> oh, where can we get that? <laughs>